you have a copy of God's Word, I turn your attention this evening to Judges chapter 21. Judges chapter 21. We've been going through the Gospel of Luke in our evening service for a long time, as many of you know, but I will be setting that aside through December, God willing, we'll return to it at the beginning of the year, but given this is the last evening that I'll preach, my brother, Reverend Kelly, preaching next Lord's Day evening, and then we'll go into the uh, plans for my preaching uh, during December. With all that being the case, I, there's something I wanted to leave before you uh, in anticipation of, well, you'll understand in just a moment, but I want to just read one text that seems appropriate for what we wish to deal with this evening. It's at the very end of the book of Judges. It's the sad summary of the book of Judges in which we are told in verse 25 of Judges 21, In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Amen. Let's momentarily pray, ask for the Lord's help upon His Word this evening. Father, we thank Thee for the blessing of assembling together in this fashion, and it is a little heaven on earth for us. We pray that you will etch in our memory the things that we learn as we gather as the people of God. May we not easily forget what we hear. Our Lord Jesus warned us, take heed how ye hear. So we pray that you will help us to be good hearers of the Word, and then also to be doers of it. We pray for grace to receive the word then tonight, and you know the need of every heart and every life, and I pray that that need may be met. Bless your people, encourage them, but remember those that still are unsure in a state or condition of doubt, whether young or old, whether experienced or inexperienced, we pray the word would be used by the Spirit to bring souls to assurance of faith. So come, Lord, do thy work, bless us, drive back the powers of darkness, give us the unction of the Holy One, that help that makes the difference, so that our words land, that they hit the target, that God's Word would live and abide with power in our lives. Hear us then, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the past couple of weeks, no doubt many of you have been following, if not intently to some degree, the trial and the subsequent acquittal of Kyle Rittenhouse. Seeing the headlines, I couldn't help but wonder, first, is it wise to broadcast such a politically charged court case? There will be pros and cons, I imagine, but I'm not sure. Certainly a new experience for a non-American. But also, I wondered, why, why televi televise that case? What about other cases? 
What about the case at present concerning Ghislaine Maxwell and her alleged involvement with Jeffrey Epstein? Why not look at that as well? Who chooses what gets national focus? Whatever the case, there's all sorts of sordid wickedness that's always going on. There's all sorts of craziness and immorality. And the moral fabric of our nation is under constant assault. And as much as this is expected, what concerns me is the, is the numbing effect that this has, not just upon the society in general, but upon the people of God. Sin is sanitized. That's the day in which we live. We hardly know right from wrong anymore. And that has not only led to a, a spiritual decay in the soul, but also a cheapening of, of God's sovereign grace. We have cheapened what Christ has done. Ask yourself, do you, do you really understand the God that you worship? Do you? Do you really know the God that you worship? Do, do men that gather in churches Sunday by Sunday, do they really know God? Are many having a profound confrontation with God in these days? Do they have a sense of the holiness of God in these days? Do men even preach about the holiness of God anymore? We like to elevate certain things and suggest certain things are important, but see what the Lord says about what's important, those that He looks upon with intent and consideration. In Isaiah 66, verse 2, the Lord says, To this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. And just stop there and ask yourself, do, is that the experience? Is, is that me? Do, do I even know what that means, to, to tremble at the word? It may look differently in different places and different people, but ultimately I think that's the spirit of the publican in Luke chapter 18. Where we're told by our Lord Jesus, the publican standing far, afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He's trembling. He's trembling. If not physically trembling, he certainly feels the sense of his his separation from God, his need for mercy from God. And the Lord says that such go home justified. They, they tremble. They fear God. There was a spiritual awakening in Ezra's day. We're told in Ezra chapter 9, verse 4, then were assembled unto me everyone that trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the transgression of those that had been carried away. They trembled. That doesn't seem to sum up the world in which we live. To be quite frank, it doesn't even seem to sum up the church. There is an absence of the fear of God. I really believe we don't even know God. 
And pulpits are so formed today that they are filling their churches with people that don't know God or, or what their duty is to Him. They actually preach in such a way that facilitates the ignorance of God rather than the knowledge of God. And what's the problem? I think our text sums it up. In these days, there is no king. There's no king in society. There's no king, in a certain sense, even in the church. So every man does that which is right in his own eyes. He sets the own parameters of his life. He dictates what is right and what is wrong. So you have pulpits that are courting the moral decay, arguing in defense of the insanity, the moral insanity of our generation. There is no king. There's no king. No king in the church, no king in their hearts but themselves. So what's the answer? What's the answer? Well, we believe in revival. We do. We believe in spiritual awakening. We believe that God has seen fit to do that time and time again over the course of history. He has awakened. He has quickened. He has intervened over and over again in the affairs of men in ways that we might designate that's revival. While we pray for revival, we are also to utilize means. And one of the means that God has given to teach our hearts is His law. When I say law, I mean the Ten Commandments. So I'm ministering in a day when I see the decline morally. I look ahead and I think, I, I may have, I may have, God sparing me, I may have three decades or so. Look back three decades. Look back to 1991. I can look back to 1991. And I still remember the scandal when certain things were first broadcast on television. We were appalled. Certain things that were being permitted to air. And it's all come now, and it's not just that we tolerate it, but actually we are saying we are using language that affirms it and promotes it. And it's, it's not being laid out there as a choice. It's being foisted and pushed and driven. So what means has God given to me? What means has God given to us? And so, over the last number of months, I have discussed with our elders a burden on my own heart, and we have agreed that beginning on the first Lord's Day of the new year, that we will add the law of God in our public worship and excerpts from the larger catechism. 
It will be formatted in such a fashion that it will be responsive. I will say, for example, what is the first commandment? You will respond, so on and so forth. We'll get to the format another time. And I have split it up through the entire larger catechism that deals with the Ten Commandments, and I've split up all of it into 52 sections so that through the entire year we will go through all of the law of God and the larger catechism's explanation of the law. Now, I can hear arguments against. I can say, well, why, why then? Why, why would you do that? We're not under law. We're under grace. You're a Christian church. Why, why, why turn to the law? And so tonight, what I want to deal with is what I've entitled, Why the Law Matters in a Christ-Centered Church. Why the law matters in a Christ-centered church. We are a Christ-centered church. The text behind me keeps that ever before us. Behold the Lamb of God. We're Christ-centered. But that does not mean that in a Christ-centered church we depart from, cast aside, ignore the law of God. Because if you do that, well, welcome to the 21st century and all of its debauchery. So, Firstly, consider with me, the Christ-centered church must understand its accountability before God. The Christ-centered church must understand its accountability before God. It has become increasingly common today for men to declare that the Ten Commandments, they have no distinction from Israel's civil and ceremonial laws. They, they are, they are they're one orb, one unit, and therefore since... All of that is done away with in Christ. We, we cast out all of it. That's very common today. And while the civil and ceremonial laws are not what we give ourselves to, yet they flow out of the Decalogue. And that's not my intention to get into the ins and outs of that, but it is clear, it is clear that there's a distinction in what we might po- call the, the moral law versus the civil and the ceremonial. There's distinction there. Paul, writing in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, declares, For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these, having not the law, are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts. His point is that these non-Jewish nations, these, these nations outside the parameter of Israel, these people to whom the oracles of God were not given that did not attend at Sinai, these people also indicate that they understand. They understand. They do by nature the things that were given to Israel. Of course, the reality is, if you read the book of Genesis very carefully and the early chapters of Exodus, you will discover that every single one of the Ten Commandments is found. They were not first given in Exodus chapter 20. They were given long before that. They were communicated to Adam. God has written them in the heart, and by the fall they have faded. The understanding has decayed. It's not quite clear to the fallen man that what it is God requires, but there's still sufficient understanding so that when we see the law of God, we say, yes, I get it. If I say, for example, 
Thou shalt not bear false witness. No matter where I am in the world, there's an understanding. Lying is not right. Now, it may not be with the same clarity, of course. But all men understand the rationale of the law. They may not see it so much when they're doing it, but they know when they are they on the receiving end of it, when they are the ones that are suffering as a result of it. And so they may lie and lie and lie, and then they stand in a, in a case, a court, no matter how primitive it may look, and a, a man who's done some wrong against them stands and lies before the entire court to the judge or whoever, and they're, 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 they're angry, they're livid. This is not true. This is not what happened. They understand that. And you can go through all the commandments and reflect upon that reality. And the church, the church of Jesus Christ exists to communicate man's accountability before God. We are to make men aware that they are accountable before this God. That 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 law which is written in their hearts is not written in vain. That the one who put it there is the one before whom they are accountable. And when they stand on the day of judgment and he pronounces condemnation, they will understand why. They will know it. When they stand before God condemned, they will not ask for explanation about their sin. They will know. But we are living in a time where the standard of right and wrong is relative. It fluctuates, changes. You decide, you decide. You, whatever you think is right and wrong, that's, that's what's promoted today. If it feels right, do it. But you don't, friend. You don't. You do not get to determine right and wrong. You don't. You have... You can try, and you may get away with it for as long as you exist on this earth, but, but by and large, by and by, some point, sometime, you're going, to, you're going to realize you're not getting away with it. Now, you may even discover it today. You may, because you may say to yourself, well, I don't like that law, and you go against it, and then and those who uphold the law, the police, and the judges, and everything else will have a different opinion. In the 1640s, one of the most influential documents of the Western world, the Westminster Confession of Faith, was put together. It took years. Godly men assembled and put down really a confession, an accumulation of, of Christian doctrine that was, its purpose was to be ecumenical. It was to, to be used throughout all churches in as far as men would see fit to use it. And in addition to the Confession of Faith and other profoundly influential document that was written in the 1640s is the Shorter Catechism that goes along with it. It's basically the doctrine, or at least a part of the doctrine of the confession that is then put in a question and answer format to teach the primary doctrines of the Christian faith. And it's crafted in a very careful way, in such a fashion even that when you remember the answer, you don't even really need to know the question that was asked. And that's by intent. 
But the larger catechism was another document put together. It follows the same format, question and answer. But it has been largely neglected. Very few have ever read through it. Very few. As a tool for memorization, it's intimidating. It would be a challenge to memorize the larger catechism, I, I grant you that. So that's largely why then we, we don't use it. We, we teach our children the shorter catechism. We encourage them to memorize that. But there are many things that are helpful to us that we don't memorize, and we still read it because of its, it's helpful. But it seems as if we have kind of wholesale just dumped the larger catechism. We've, so, well, because we can't memorize it, we're never going to use it. It seems foolish. And one of its jewels and its crown is the clarity it gives in the law. You will find few things that give such clarity in what it means to not commit adultery, what it means to not lie, what, what it looks like to honor your father and mother and so on and so forth. You will find few things in such concise language help you understand the significance of that. It was at a time even when it was originally given a discussion about whether it should be used to preach from. Should men get up and actually use the larger catechism and preach from it? Many men, especially of the Scottish ilk, said, no, we can't do that. The preacher must always begin with Scripture, not with propositional truths. And there's a good point. But again, it doesn't mean that we cast it aside. And we are living in a time when men have made themselves the ultimate authority of morality. They, they dictate what's right and wrong. And that would be fine if you are your own judge on Judgment Day, but you're not. You're not. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. It is our Lord Jesus Christ that will be judge on that day. Acts 17, verse 31, He hath appointed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom He hath ordained. God has appointed a day in which Christ will judge. And our purpose as the church, what is it to do? It is to make men aware of their accountability. You're going to stand before God. The follow-up question simply is, On what account? To what end? To what purpose? About your life. About the things that you've done or not done. You're going to give account of yourself to God. On what am I therefore to assess my my life? How am I to understand what He expects? This is part then of our duty. The church is to show that men are accountable before God. And the way to do that is is the law. So every Lord's Day we will come and we will read and what will be part of the intention then is that, that everyone is being instructed. Those of you familiar, as familiar as you may be with some of this, will be, have a revision, a reminder. And you'll, you'll feel its impact as it, as it digs into your conscience when you look back over the past week and realize, I've failed right here. I've failed. And I hope that happens every single week. Not because I hope you live in sin every week, but because I know you live in sin every week, and I want you to feel it. I want you to feel it. Because we come in here and we imagine I've done okay, but, but that, 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 
Oh, you know, you know the bomb, the bomb, and this is it. It's not just the law. It will lead us to Christ. There will be understanding of our acceptance. That will be part of it as well. There will be reminders every time. Example, Romans 8, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ. But we need to, we need to understand. We all need to grapple with this. We are accountable to God. Secondly, the Christ-centered church must publish the standard of acceptance before God. The Christ-centered church must publish the standard of acceptance before God. How do you know what pleases God? How? Tell me. I ask you if you leave here tonight, what pleases God? What is it? And of course, the answer to that is found in the law. Actually, found in the law. The law emanates the heart of God, the standard of God, the standard of holiness and righteousness, right and wrong. And so we are, we are called to, to know it, to be familiar with it, Perfect obedience is vital. And not just the outward acts, but the inner motive of the heart. Paul, the great apostle, he, he prided himself as a Jew in his outward obedience. He thought he was, he had it. It was all under control. And he knew the law, and he believed in his outward obedience. He testified in Philippians 3 verse 6, Touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. His assessment was, according to the law, as I look at my life, as I look at the outward manifestation of my obedience to that law, I am blameless. No one can bring a charge of me breaking the law. And he felt fine. For years he felt fine. He, he drifted along in the blissful ignorance of his own sin, until, as he testifies in Romans 7, I had not known lust, except the law has said, thou shalt not covet. You see, the Tenth Commandment plays this unique role in the law of God. It plays this role because all the others we can look at purely externally. Now, we're not meant to, we're not meant to. We're meant to see that there's a more, there's a deeper, more profound application of all the commandments that go far more than the mere surface obedience of them. But it's the tenth commandment that actually drives that. Because thou shalt not covet. Think of it. Think of all the others. You, you can legislate for all the others. You can legislate for all the other commands. And we do have laws for some of them. Okay. We have laws that dictate, and we can tell, you've you're broken this, and you will suffer the penalty of the law because you've done so. Thou shalt not kill. We can tell you did that. But what the Tenth Commandment, it's very hard to legislate the Tenth Commandment. Thou shalt not covet. Covet? Coveting is that of the heart. Coveting is that inward lust. It's, 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 it's what initiates, it's, what, it's the beginnings of why you killed that person. It's, it's the beginnings of why you committed adultery. You, 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 you lost it first in the heart, and you can't legislate that. 
And Paul was fine insofar as he looked at the outward, but it was the Tenth Commandment that showed him that there was a spirituality to the law that went far deeper than the mere outward obedience. So he says, I had not known lust. I didn't understand it. Except the Tenth Commandment showed that to me. There are aspects of the day in which we living that are, are, are similar to the days prior to the flood. And you read Genesis 6 verse 5, you can't help but think, surely that's how the Lord looks on the world today. God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What a frightful assessment. Every imagination of the thought. See, see that God's looking. <laughs> He's looking beyond the outward. He, he looks and he sees the imagination of the heart. That's not just the outward. But even the imagination of the thoughts of his heart, only evil continually. So what do we need? What, what are we... We are, to, we are to make men aware that God has a standard. God has a standard. And you can't go on having these wicked imaginations in your heart. That You can't live thinking and considering that which is only evil continually. We're not to accept that that is an assessment to our day and just back off and say, well, we'll let them just go, let them go, let them just run in. No, no, we are to, we are to counsel the conscience we're to teach the hearts. We're to present to men. No, there's a standard, an absolute perfect standard. We're to make men aware by the laws and knowledge of sin, Paul writes in Romans 3.20. So this is part of a role. There was a time when, when we understood much of these things, but we don't. We don't. So you have arguments with Christians today. Argue, listen, arguments. With Christian about cohabiting, cohabiting before marriage. Like we, that, that's a discussion today. Like it's not a big deal. Based on what standard? Well, we have we we discuss as if you know things that were were so clear. <laughs> the world's going out there, and it's just kind of stirring it all up, trying to make it as murky as possible. So, so, so we can announce, <laughs> it can be announced, there's a $1.9 trillion bill. And some are happy about it. Some of us, <laughs> family worship, the other, what night was it? Was it Thursday? Whatever night it was, Friday, Thursday, whatever, family worship. And reading through Proverbs and this come up and I thought... Girls, do you know what a trillion is? <laughs> and, uh, you know, they gave some answer. You know, million, billion, trillion. I said, but, but can you see it? Can you see it? And so I pulled up a YouTube video. And it did it in terms of $100 bills. And so there was $100 bills, a little pile 
like this. This is $10,000. You could put it in your shirt pocket. $10,000 in $100 bills. Put it in your shirt pocket. Million dollars in $100 bills. You could put it in a backpack. It's right there. There's a million. Put it in a backpack. Hundred million. I think that was a like a pallet, a crate thing, like a square pallet. Is that what you call it? Pallet. That that was filled. Square. There's a hundred million. A billion. Well, that's enough pallets that would fill your entire garage. Now your garage is filled with pallets of money. And then a trillion. <laughs> it's like this this field, you know, double layered. Vast field of, of pallets that just, just fill the entire, and the man sort of standing this whole kind of beyond, almost beyond what the eye can see, pallet of, 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 of money, $100 bills. And the girls were looking at it going, whoa, you know. <laughs> and I said, that's one trillion. You just passed the bill for double that. And we don't feel how that breaks the law. We're not disgusted by it. And it's vile. It is, it's vile. It's unjust balances that are abomination to God. We don't know the law, so we just watch on. And maybe we snicker. Sometimes it feels like all you can do is laugh. But it's unjust weights and balances that God says abomination. But we don't know. We just don't know the law. So we rob from future generations to fund our little plans today. So why does this go on? Because we don't know the law. So why? And how are men to know if the pulpits have fallen silent? If we don't understand, if, we, if God has taught in his word is ignored. So, so another 30 years, I think, what state, what state will this world be in? I think, what's the answer? Well, I mean, I, I don't know if I can promise a whole lot to the world. But I'm responsible for what goes on here to some degree. I was reading the other day in Psalm 48 where it talks about Israel, talks about Zion. You can apply it to the church. And it's calling, let Mount Zion rejoice. Psalm 48 verse 11. Walk about Zion, go round about her, tell the towers thereof. Mark ye well her bulwarks, consider her palaces, that ye may tell it to the generation following. But this is the truth. It is, is bulwarks. This, this is the church. It is bulwarks of truth. Walls of truth. Walls that are permanent, that last, that you can point to the next generation and say, here it is. It doesn't change. This is the same truth that, that we have lived by, what we've sought to uphold. We honor God in this. These things don't move. These walls don't fluctuate. These truths, they're, they're dependable in every generation. And they honor God. It's the standard that God has given that doesn't change. 
So the church, we, we, are to, we are to help people understand this. Thirdly, the Christ-centered church must lead sinners to Christ. The Christ-centered church must lead sinners to Christ. That, I think, goes without saying. And this, of course, is the, really the sharp end. Because the most damning thing that can happen in any church, this church included, is for anyone to believe that they can get to heaven and find acceptance before God based upon their own merit or something else other than Christ. So we need men to know. I need you to know. I am, I am duty bound before God for you to know that you need to flee to Christ. You, every one of you, you need to flee to Christ. And every Lord's Day, you need to flee to Christ. In fact, every day, you need to flee to Christ. And I want you to know you need to flee to Him. I want you to be aware, not just once, something in the past. I walked an aisle, I prayed a prayer, I committed my way to God, I asked Him to forgive me. I want you to know, I want you to know every day. I meet the Lord every day. I want you to know it. I want you to feel it, to feel it profoundly in your heart. Do you feel it? Do you? Do you feel it? Do you feel it daily? Those of you here tonight, do you, do you feel it daily? Because if you don't, if you don't, you want to know why? You want to know why? It's because you haven't felt the cutting effect of the law in your conscience. How do I lead man to Christ? I'm told. Paul writes about it in Galatians 3. Verse 24. The law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. So that tells me a number of things. For one, it tells me that the law drives us to Christ. It drives us to Christ. That's what I want. That's what I want. I want it. I want it. I want you, all the time, driven to Christ. Yes. Yes, not by me. Not by me making you, but, but by, the, by the weight. By the weight of His Word. And, and the law, the law does that. You come in here unsaved. I want the unsaved to be aware. I want our children. Our children, come, look at them. Look at them. They're not all saved. They're not all saved. And what do they need? What do they need? They need the law. They need the law, that law to come to their conscience, to prick them, to expose the wickedness of their hearts as they, as they get up in years and they begin to, they begin to feel the, the utter folly of trying to obey in their own strength. And how disappointing they are. Yes, boys and girls, you will not obey. You won't. You disobey because it's in your nature to disobey. There's a problem with you, and it's not just a problem with you, it's a problem with us all. We are sinners by nature. And I want you to feel the law in such a way that you become aware of that, that it might drive you to Jesus Christ in despair over yourself. But also I learned from that text that, that as Christians, we are, not, we are not to embrace the law as an instrument of salvation. It is not. It is Christ. So it goes on to say, 
Yes, the law is our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. That we are to cling then to Christ. And, and the way I do that, the way I do that is by, is by seeing I don't want to be under the law. I don't, want to, I don't want to come to Christ. And then imagine now that I'm justified, that I can kind of step back out and go and deal with the law, bargain with the law, try to live by the law in such a way that, that I can do that without the Lord Jesus. It will crush me again. It will crush me. And so... Every Lord's Day you come and you hear the Word and you're under the Word and, and you go out from here, like we all do, you go out from here and there's a little bit of self-righteousness that you battle with every day. That thinks to yourself, I can do this. You know, I've got this. I've got it. I'm all right. You know, I've been a Christian now for a good number of years. I, I, can, I can handle the, the challenges of the Christian living and then, you know, you kind of step out on your own and then what happens? You fall flat on your face. And you realize, in some ways, you're maybe even more wretched now than you ever were before. Because you're far more light now. And what does that do then? It gets you back where you ought to have been, back in the arms of Jesus Christ. Not going to the schoolmaster and trying to do business with him, but running to Christ. So again, hearing the law keeps us hidden under Christ. Running to him. Oh, this, this is the thing. And so, so we look at it and we go through it and you're going to feel it. You're going to feel it. You are. If you're not, God help us. You will feel it. As we, as we go through the exposition of the law and the statements made in the larger catechism and you're going, to, you're going to be appalled at yourself. You may actually first be appalled at the language of the catechism. How dare they? Really? I guess that's not sin. But then, then you will learn like the rest of us. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. I am condemned. I am guilty. And I'm guilty in ways I never even knew I was guilty. And what do I do? I run. I run. I run into the arms of the Lord. I fall again and weep at His feet, begging Him for grace. That's what needs to happen. Here, it needs to happen across America. We need to recognize that we can't do it. And so the Christ-centered church is to lead men genuinely to Christ. And the, and the way the Lord has appointed that is by the law humbling the proud hearts of sinners. Not by invitation. Listen, the way the gospel is preached in many churches today actually is designed to appeal to the carnal nature of man. I've said this before, but let me lay it out straight in case you're wondering what I'm talking about. If I tell you, come to Jesus Christ and you'll be healthy, you'll be rich, you'll have all your desires met, what part of that would you not want? Everybody wants that. Everybody wants that. And yet Jesus says that you have to deny yourself and take up your cross to be a disciple of him. If you're going to follow him, it requires death. But, but the gospel's going out there in a way that appeals to the carnal nature of men. I mean, what's wrong with us? What's wrong with the church? And they don't know who God is. That's it, you see, that's it. And we don't know who God is. Men are filling pulpits. They have no consideration. They have no knowledge. They have absolutely 
They are completely devoid of the basics of who God is. And we do not make Christ appealing by turning to the, the, the things that, that the carnal nature wants. It's like we've turned it into... You know, the, the, the men that know, the, aside from godly preachers who are surgeons of the heart, the other, the other profession that exists out there that understands the psychology of men is advertisers. They know. They know. They know what your carnal heart desires. So when they're selling you a BMW, they don't tell you the stats. You know, they don't go in there, the zero to 60 is this, that, and that. That's not why you buy a BMW. You buy it because you get emotionally attached to the lifestyle that comes with it, to the appearance, for how people will perceive you. It's all of that. You're emotionally drawn. It's fact. That's what the advertisers know. They don't, they don't bedazzle you with, with all the facts and figures. That's how you tell yourself it's worth it, right? Miners per gallon and all the rest of it. That's how you tell yourself that it's worth the money. But it's not really what's the driving factor. It's, they understand. There's, there's this, this innate thing within man's nature, and they tap into that. They know exactly how to get your attention. So they have it there, you know, with a beautiful woman in the passenger seat, whoever it is, you know, garbage. Because they know, they know. <laughs> the preachers today, they don't even know. It's like, they, 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 they sell it in the same way. They sell Christ in the same way, like the advertisers. You don't realize that you're actually, actually meant to make men aware of the horror of their own heart and nature. So we look to Jesus Christ, and what do we see in him? Not someone who makes us rich in this world's goods, but rich in righteousness. So I, have, I have no need to add to that righteousness if I have the righteousness of Christ. And he doesn't take away all my sickness because, because it's still there. There are many who have physical ailments. They don't come to Christ to get rid of those physical ailments. They come to get rid of the ailment of sin. And that promise, that promise they can count on. And so we lead sinners to Christ by driving them away from any thought that they can satisfy what God demands themselves. So Paul writes in Galatians 2.16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. This is what we know. So they say, how can I get that righteousness? You know, you know when, the father, when the father looked at the son and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, how can I have that assessment on the day of judgment? How can I have that assessment? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. How can that be mine? Flee to Christ. Flee to Christ. Run to Christ. Hide in Christ. Claim Christ. Hold on to him with all of your might and never let go. It's by the faith of Jesus Christ alone. So we give the law. 
not as the grounds of your salvation, but to drive you to the means of your salvation. To make you aware of your need of Jesus Christ. So we, 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 we sing of him. We've already rejoiced in him tonight because he satisfies everything our sinful hearts desire. This is the thing. You know, we gather, given the way most churches are today, we're, we're a kind of stodgy bunch, aren't we? And, and, and people look on and say, there's, there's no joy. I say, no, you don't get it. You don't get it. We have such joy. We have such joy in our hearts. It's just not about us. We don't come here to make this about us. It's about him. And such is the miracle of his grace that we can say then, and this is amazing, isn't it? It's amazing that we can say with Paul in Romans 7, 22, I delight in the law of God after the inward man. Why would I when it condemns me so much? Why would I delight in the law of God after the inward man? Because, because I see Christ fulfilling it for me. And I want to be conformed to him. And in some way that law is showing me how he lived and I want to replicate that and walk even so as Jesus walked. It no longer damns me, but I can look at it and see how Christ fulfilled it and endeavor to embrace the same law he lived by. And as it mediates to us through him, we no longer need to fear it. So starting January, we're going to walk through the Ten Commandments. There will be little excerpts of the larger catechism. And we'll go through the vast majority, not all of it, but the vast majority of the larger catechism statements concerning the Ten Commandments as part of our worship of the Lord of every Lord's Day of this incoming year. And I am pleading that the Lord will use it. This is long term. This is long term. This is, this is shaping the consciences of our children. Long term helping us to understand the extent of our own sinfulness and enabling us to treasure Christ even more as we learn the ugliness of our own condition and nature. God is not in the business of making you feel good about yourself. He's in the business of making you feel the horror of yourself and the glories of Jesus Christ. You're not to look to yourself for salvation, you look to Christ for salvation. And as I see that ugliness in me and that perfection that is in Him, I am driven to Him rather than to me. And the law will help in that regard. Oh, may the blessed Spirit use it and help us in these days to say, Oh, I love thy law. Let's pray. you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus Christ, the law of God ought to terrify you. The book of James tells us that whoso keepeth the whole law and yet offends in one point is guilty of all. Guilty of all. Even things that you think you're not guilty of, you're guilty of. Such is the interconnectedness of every commandment given by God. So you're guilty. 
Paul writes in Romans 3 that all the world is guilty before God. So you're not alone. The question I ask you tonight is, standing guilty before God, what are you going to do? Are you going to stay there? Remain in your guilt? Shame? Are you going to run to Christ? Believe. Trust. Rest. And he who fulfilled the law. If I can help you in any way, if you need me to open the Scriptures and clarify anything, be sure to see me after the service. But even where you are, you may seek the Lord. You may cry out to Him like the publican, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And He will hear that cry. Lord, we pray for the Word tonight that You will help us. We live in times when every man does that which is right in his own eyes. There's no king. There's no king in Israel. There's no king in the church. There's no king in our society. We are we're trying to navigate without the law of God. We're trying to reframe the purpose of Christ's work. And we're making an utter mess of it. Lord, we pray you'll have mercy. Begin here in this congregation. God, humble every proud heart. Begin in mine. Deliver me from any self-reliance, any dependence upon myself. I beg you, Lord, that of all in this gathering, that I most of all would know my need of Christ and dependence on him. And may it flow from the pulpit to the pew. May we be a people utterly and totally dependent upon Jesus Christ. May we love him. May we rest in him. May we weep at his feet. May we embrace him every day. May he be the true king of our hearts. May he mediate his law into every fabric of our being, that we would be conformed to the image of thy Son. Be with us then in all our conversation here and at home. Go with those that part immediately and others that make their way downstairs, sanctify the conversation and the fellowship. May we all receive blessings from the Lord. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God our Savior be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. Amen.